from talkradio.nyc. Welcome to At Home. I'm David Thiergartner, interior designer and owner of David Thiergartner Interiors right here in beautiful Manhattan. On tonight's show, preserve, protect, inspire. My guest tonight is John Bueno. John is an architect and a preservationist, a senior project manager at Zimmerman Architects in New York City, and leads the firm's work in the city's historic districts. John has recently completed a multi-year renovation of the United Nations Conference Building and General Assembly Hall, the Cartier Mansion on Fifth Avenue, and the preservation planning for the Massachusetts State House, and also the Wright Brothers Memorial. I'm anxious to talk to John all about responsible stewardship and the power of historic preservation to transform and revitalize our cultural heritage. And because we like to use music to continue our conversations here, we've selected five pieces of newly preserved instruments or musical selections that we'll play throughout the hour. First is a preserved early 18th century pianoforte playing Beethoven sonata in F major, just hopefully as Beethoven intended. Then a beautiful Scottish Brindle and Foster pipe organ that was just newly restored. We have Michael Feinstein preserving the American songbook and ancient Jewish music from the Pro Musica Hebrica. And finally, a newly discovered American revolutionary patriotic song. So there's a lot to talk about. Let's get started. I arrived in New York across the Verrazano Bridge at sunset. The sky was ablaze with pinks of all shades and streaks of orange, of which had the audacity to dance with the clouds. The traffic was nothing more than a typical L.A. freeway, except I had never been 300 feet in the air before, on a windy suspension bridge in full-stop traffic. As nervous as I was, it gave me a chance to see in the distance, for the very first time, my new home. Looking between cars and around construction barriers, the city floated above the water. The iconic Twin Towers stood above the sunset, and down below the bridge, just off to the left, a streak of gold sparkled from the old glass mosaic flame from the torch of the Statue of Liberty. At that point in my young life, at the beginning of true adulthood and at the end of my transcontinental road trip, that deteriorating old mosaic glass torch was the most beautiful thing I had ever seen. New York was a bygone city in the early 80s. The bankruptcy just a few years before was the final straw of the once and magnificent city. Only the excitement of being here, of being a new citizen, could I have possibly overlooked the much-needed work required for 
all of what we hold dear today. The weather-damaged Bettina statue, the deterioration of Central Park, the blistering paint of the great vaulted mural of Grand Central Station devouring each and every star and constellation. And just months before my momentous bridge crossing, three Broadway theaters were torn down and 42nd Street was more of a scary dark alleyway than the great white way of years past. Those are only a few examples and more than enough indication that time was indeed running out. Every month something else was gone that we couldn't get back. But waiting offstage, behind the scenes, a group of private citizens, architects, engineers, preservationists started their work to preserve, protect, and save our most important cultural references. And tonight, we are lucky enough to talk to one such person, preservationist and architect John Bueno uh, from Zimmerman Architects. And John might have been a bit young in the early 80s, but uh, today's John's contribution to the preservation of the United Nations, his work as a member of a prestigious group of designers and engineers preserving the interiors and exteriors of the Cartier Building on Fifth Avenue, and other projects of national importance like the Tuskegee Airman Landmark or, I don't know, is an inspiration to, to us all. And I'm excited to talk to him to discuss the process, the study, the expertise, the conviction, and the excitement that is required to preserve these important historic and cultural buildings and monuments. In my almost 40 years as a New Yorker, believe it or not, my excitement and pride of witnessing our amazing city's renewal is nothing more than awe-inspiring. To walk in and about Central Park and to remember the devastation of it and to see how it is now in all of its glory is nothing less than thrilling. And to think that Broadway was dying in the early 80s and now is thriving, not only as a cultural inspiration, but the hundred-year-old theaters have been restored and preserved for a new generation of theater goers. And the list goes on and on and on and oh, and I can't forget my most favorite thing, which is, for some reason, the granite fountain in Bryant Park. I'm not aware of a park or a square or a monument that hasn't been preserved or restored in recent years. It is one thing to build magnificent new buildings and parks for that matter. But it is quite another to preserve what we hold dear, to protect what is culturally and historically important, and to make new what inspires us. When we come back, my conversation with architect and preservationist John Bueno. This is At Home. I'm David Thiergartner, and we'll be back in two minutes. It's Brindley and Foster. It's also the soundboards are individual actions which have a, a pillbox motor and pallet for every, every single pipe in the organ. Uh, we decided to keep it that way because it's one of the few left in original condition and uh, we felt restoration was the best uh, format here.
You're listening to the Talking Alternative Network. You're listening to the Talking Alternative Network. Are you stuck in a rut? Negative thoughts, feelings, and conversations got you down? Hi, I'm Noreen Sumter, The Potentiator. Tune in every Tuesday at 9 to 10 p.m. Eastern Time and listen for new ideas on my show, Beyond Potential, Live Life Your Way, on talkradio.nyc. Who do you want to connect with? Are you an entrepreneur or intrapreneur looking to build your following? Welcome to our show. Follow Me Friday with Joan and Priya. Tune in every Friday at noon Eastern on talkradio.nyc. We're We're your digital connectors. connectors. Woo woo! (laughs) (laughs) Talking Alternative Radio, 24 hours a day. My guest tonight, and I'm going to try to say it correctly, John Buono. Hey, it's all good. I, I think I told you before, I grew up in Kentucky. So a, a kid with an Italian last name. In Kentucky? Yeah, you just you pretty much take whatever you can get. So how would you say it? You know, I mean, I grew up, and the quickest association anyone could make was Sonny Bono. And oh, so okay. it was Sonny Bono. You know, we just went by Bono. But as I have studied Italian and been a little bit truer to my roots, I would say Buono. Oh, I think Buono. 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 Very nice. Yeah. You're an architect, I a am. preservationist, and you are the senior project manager for Zimmerman Architects. I'm happy to have you here, so welcome to At Home. Um, you know, we start each and every show with the same question for everybody, which is, what is your meaning of beauty? And maybe more specifically, what is beautiful in your home? Yeah. Uh, you know, thinking about that before... Um, being a historian tends to lead you down a path where you uh, you get very caught up in why something is beautiful, you know the the history of something, the craft of something, the people that were involved, and you know that gets very cerebral. And at some point, I always want to keep myself in check that you know I don't want my sense of beauty to become so cerebral that I can't kind of connect with other people. And uh, you know, I was telling you that I, I am a I, I have to admit I'm. I'm still in the generation that uh, I love Instagram. I, I could definitely find myself like losing hours on it. And that's just one of these moments when you are flipping through and then all of a sudden just something grabs you. Mm. And it is not describable. It is a immediate visceral reaction. Like that is beautiful. Wow. You know, you just stop. And I have to say, I you know, even just recently, there's this one um, Swedish textile designer, and I know I'm butchering the name, um, uh, Marta Mas Fjederstrom. Um, it's, an, it's a house that's from like the early 1900s, and they always had a history of working with uh, artists, you know, from other fields. 
And I see patterns that they are bringing out of their archives. And I'm just I'm like, oh, my God, that's like that combination of colors, that geometry. And it's just it's instant. So, um, yeah, you know, I'd always, I'm always going to have the historical sense or the, I guess, the pedigree idea of what's Yeah, but beauty. I mean, isn't that what, uh, isn't that why Mona Lisa is still so famous to this day or why people think that they're supposed to think it's beautiful? I mean, isn't always disappointing when you have a friend who goes, oh, I went to, I stood in line for two hours and I don't think the Mona Lisa is so beautiful. But if you don't add all of the context to it, all of the history to it, all of what made her beautiful, you're missing out on some sure, things. So sure. I think that's a really value, yeah. um, a valuable thing to be able to do. Yeah, think and story, story is a big, I mean, if, if I didn't have... Story's a, huge. If I didn't have a love for story, I, I wouldn't be doing what I'm doing. Um, oh, but you asked about like in my apartment yeah, in or your like own home. my yeah. living situation. So you must have something Swedish, I'm thinking, no? Well, For an Italian. Okay, so I will say that there are some... You know, elements of things I learned about during work on the UN, because one of the very special things about uh, the conference building is that the major chambers were each the gift of a Scandinavian nation, uh, particularly uh, Denmark, Sweden, and Norway. And so those rooms just instantly had the, uh, you know, the very, very highest degree of design that was going on, say, in 1940s, 1950s in those countries, which included a lot of fantastic textile design. Um, so, you know, learning about that has like, you know, that's become kind of a, a wonky issue yeah, for kind me. Kind of a, a wonky mind trap. Yeah. yeah. But I also have to acknowledge that it's starting to be spring. I, you know, I grew up in suburbia, so I'm definitely kind of like a, a green person and a plant person. And I was realizing that there's right now, I don't have a lot of green upholstery or green furniture, but I've got two pieces. And for some reason right now, it's all kind of blending together with the plants in my apartment. I've got some geraniums that are like eight years old that are still blooming nice. and they just started blooming. Nice. And so I feel like there's this little green wave going through my apartment between the plants and these two great old chairs I have. Um, so yeah, that's like, that's my, uh, that's my best, that's the best way I can get to like a green hillside and uh, living near Union Square. <laughs> well, from a boy from Kentucky, you're doing pretty well. <laughs> I'm trying. That's really, really good. Um, well, great. Great answers. You know, there's never a bad answer with any of that, but that was a particularly good one. So thank you for that. Um, why do you think preservation is important? Um, you know, it is the story aspect. And I feel like when I kind of gravitate to the story aspect, that's I'm really, you know, talking like inside, you know, um, I'm really talking about the professionals I work with and how they tell the stories and how they research the stories. But then beyond that, just for, you know, uh, human history for civilization for um, you know what the public good of preservation is that it's been said many times more eloquently than this but you know you don't know who you are unless you know where you came from and so I think on that broader idea you know that's that's uh, that can get interpreted to lots of different degrees but being a historian and also looking at the way that how preservation kind of gets built into the way that we operate in practice, y you can't ignore that, uh, you know, a lot of the strongest kind of uh, uh, resolutions we have for preservation have come from armed conflict. You know, uh, there were protections during the Civil War that Lincoln 
enacted. There were protections that emerged out of World War One, and then you know I, I think it's become a little bit popularized from the movie The Monuments Men. Right. But that was a very serious element. Uh, it was known as the Blue Shield. Um, that there was this concerted effort to realize that you know the Allies. Uh, had these bombing campaigns or these maps and they did not have the monuments listed on the maps. So there was a certain recklessness, I guess, to what the bombing... To the destruction. Yeah, to the destruction. Of what would be something cultural significant in whatever bombing campaign they were on. Right, right. Right, yeah. So, you know, I mean, that's the the very grave sense of how important preservation can be. And certainly, you know, in the Middle East, that's been a a huge issue with um, the armed conflict there and a lot of desecration of of amazing monuments. Um, But, uh, you know, the more the more what we call benign neglect of preservation is is just, you know, the kind of the everyday losses that we have of, uh, you know, ignored buildings, things that um, can uh, simply just be lost to maintenance and issues like that or yeah. neglect or overdevelopment, redevelopment. Or that nobody has decided that it was special enough to keep. Yeah, they, have, they haven't been recognized. Yeah, yeah, for what they are. Right. Um, I love, I want to kind of jump back to what you said earlier about that question, which was the, the story of it. So how much is the story of the building, the story of the town, the story of the neighborhood, the story of the, of the place goes into the process of preserving it and restoring it and rebuilding it? How, how important is that story? You know, across the... And, Oh, go ahead. No, go ahead. Uh, well, I was just thinking, and because there's there would be treasures in that story that maybe the town doesn't even know. Sure, sure. I mean, we've now evolved to a point globally where there are metrics for, you know, identifying significance. Oh, okay. And yeah. uh, you know, there there are international agreements on significance in the U.S. I should just you know focus on the fact that we've got the Secretary of the Interior standards. They are kind of our guidelines nationally. They fall into a lot of the decisions that get made at a local level, at a state level, or at a national level. But, you know, the thing to acknowledge is that it's not just aesthetics. Uh, significance is a very wide spectrum. And so it can be, you know, it can be something historical. It can be something, a technical achievement. Um, and, you know, the expression that we love to always keep in our head is that uh, extraordinary things have happened in ordinary places. Mm-hmm. Oh, so it could have a historic significance. Certainly. Yeah. Yeah, certainly. And so, you know, I mean, that's been, you mentioned the Tuskegee Airmen site, you know, one of my kind of joys and also great learning lessons was working on a number of sites related to the civil rights movement um, in the Southeast. Uh, The Tuskegee Airmen was certainly one of them. You know, these are not architecturally uh, amazing buildings or constructions. They do have a significance in the fact that they were made by the students. Um, you know, of the Tuskegee Institute to foster this uh, flight training program uh, that was, you know, really the introduction of African Americans into armed service during uh, World War II. Uh, But it's what is important is what happened there. It's not so much what these spaces looked like. And there, you know, uh, there's a whole, the civil rights movement is full of locations, whether they're, um, you know, diners or, uh, or you know a whole range of just standard public facilities that actually are interesting because of what happened there. Uh, fascinating, and and just love to hear all those stories about that. What's the difference? The main difference between preservation and or restoration, and are they different or are they 
lock and loaded with each other. Well, yeah, I mean, you're good to point out because it's been something that's literally been debated for centuries. Uh, what the difference or what the, you know, when you start to debate the two, you're getting into a little bit of ethic about which is the better approach to take. Um, you know, I, I think if you attach adjectives to them, restoration is very much about depicting a certain period of time. And preservation is about, you know, sustaining a resource, you know, in perpetuity. So uh, preservation tends to be, you know, in its truest definition, more hands-off. You really just want to stabilize something for perpetuity. Restoration is where you're starting to think about that this place and everything evolves over time, but you're starting to think about what was like the most, what they call the period of significance, you know, what is kind of the most important moment that expresses what was great or what was significant about this place. And, you know, it's very typical that we will try to pick a time um, and, and that will kind of be our model for what we're uh, aiming to achieve. When people usually talk about preservation and or restoration with Venice, right, and there's always a joke, you know, so what do you want to restore it back to the 17th century, the 16th century, the 15th century, or the 14th century, pick a time, right? Because right? we can do it, or we can preserve what it is from the 13th century and let that go. We know that that probably, that building probably wouldn't exist at this point, right? So deciding where you want to be on the spectrum is an interesting, uh, yeah, I guess, yeah. moral question. Right? I mean, you said Venice, so I can't ignore it. I mean, it, because you're latching on to one of the people who was, you know, so central to those early debates, and that was Ruskin. Mm. Um, Ruskin, who was very much in the idea of the preservation camp of that everything about this stone and how it has, you know, gained patina or such over time is what you're preserving. Yeah. That, that's where the value, that's where the authenticity is. I mean, I would think so. You know, I mean, that's that's what I would be drawn to. Sure. That's what I would want to go see. That's what I would be excited about. Um, what does a preservationist architect do? What is your, like, what's your main job well oh well uh you know you are still an architect you still have got to deal with all the you know standard uh elements of building codes and construction codes and programming and ideas like that i think really you become a specialist in uh knowing archaic construction techniques so you're not just learning you know what's contemporary but you're able to look backwards that's interesting you become a detective to a certain degree um, you learn how to take things slowly. <laughs> you learn how to uh, just not jump into design and construction, but actually start before that and do research. Uh, because with every project, research is is the is ground you know ground zero. If you, unless you know what has already been documented about a place, you really don't know where to begin. Um, so, you know, I think it's, it's kind of those early steps and then it's a bit of x-ray vision and detective work that goes along the pathway that the forensic of the building. Sure. Sure. It's almost like taking an x-ray, but it's really the study of it. Yeah. Right. Right. And, you know, I mean, one thing that I can look back on my career is that truly my x-ray vision is getting better. Yeah. You know, that I, the way I describe that is when I see a crack in a wall, whereas maybe 10 years ago I had three different ideas of what was going on increasingly enough you open up those walls and you keep finding the same thing fascinating yeah and, and you know what it is wow and new york has has got lots of 
cracks. cracks in the wall. Lots of cracks in so walls. So you have a lot of reasons to uh, experiment with that idea. Is that one of the visual clues? I mean, I have a question about, you know, what are you looking for visually when, even maybe when it's your first time on the job site, you know, where's your mind racing to? What are some of the big indicators for you? Well, you know, even something that's usable for someone who's a, who's a homeowner is that one of the expressions I always think of, it's, you know, you want a building to be dry and tight because water is the number one threat to to any structure whether new or old whether new or old yeah. and you know it's waterproofing is it's it, it really is an art and a science um, and it's uh, it's becoming increasingly complicated you know these days and you know so it def- there's a craft element there that people should not take for granted but so sure the first times first things we are looking for when we're looking at a building we're looking for signs of water damage you know, basically everything that kind of telegraphs and comes to the surface of the building. That's where we first start in terms of seeing when there are problems. Of course, it's great to go to a site where you're not just looking for problems or, you know, damage or, you know, issues of maintenance that's fallen apart. It's great when you're actually going to a property and you're saying, oh, you know what, that window is not original. You know, that's that doesn't match the base spacing of that particular, say, early 1900s building. Um, so those clues of, say, the vocabulary of just the way buildings were designed, um, those are the other things that pop out at you from the first moment. I, I love that. I mean, that's not quite different than sort of an analysis of me walking into a, you know, not necessarily a historic building, but, mm-hmm. uh, you know, an older building that we're going to begin renovating and, and trying to bring it back to the true intention of sure. what it was. So, yeah, really, really fascinating. So how does preservation work with then the new codes, new conditions, like, you know, handicap access, for God's sake. Environmental conditions are so different than they were. Uh, lighting, as we talked about that earlier today. Um, you know, water, we're not using water in the same way um, inside. So how do you how do you preserve it and bring it up to modern code? And can you just talk a little bit about that and what the challenges are with that? It, it is it is a big challenge. And, uh, you know, I think in, in all cases, y- you want to accommodate all those issues to the best degree possible. And so at a certain point, it does kind of become a, a balancing act. And uh, I don't think anybody takes that lightly. You know, it's, it's always deliberated and really kind of considered. Say, for the example, you know, at uh, Independence Hall in uh, Philadelphia, Good. you know, you've got stairs or at least a few treads going up to the entrance. And the accommodation is to provide a ramp at the rear of the building, uh, which it doesn't, you know, distract from the front entrance, um, but does still pri- uh, provide that accommodation for wheelchair access at the rear. You know, that has kind of been the standard process and make uh, it available but not necessarily and not necessarily at the front door yeah uh, not ne- which you know the facade is typically you know at the at the front entrance that's kind of the 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 visual um significance you know i i think that's changing a little bit as now buildings are getting to be more contemporary i think that or i rather significance historic significance is extending forward in time i feel that you know the ability to accommodate a, a lot of these issues with uh, ADA um, is actually becoming more manageable, say at the front door, at the front entrance, while not you know distracting from what the overall aesthetic was. Have you ever been in a situation where there was uh, that you were balancing whether the modernization needed to happen versus 
preserving an element, maybe not as significant significant as the central element, but still a part of the building. Has have you ever been in that challenge where that ramp has to go here? This is our only place, and we're going to lose this door casing or yeah. any of that. Yeah, no, absolutely, and that's especially. I feel that you're kind of always embracing what is the mission of this, you know, owner. And is their mission preservation such that it would be a house museum or is their mission some other, say, public or, or private interest? And you, you do have to balance the two. I think a lot of I think a lot of compromising and a lot of balancing is a part of the gig, right? Yeah, mm-hmm. very much so. Hey, when we come back, John and I will talk about a couple of his legacy projects. One, the UN, which I'm excited to talk about. I think I might be more excited to talk about the Cartier Mansion on Fifth Avenue because right. I think we all know about that one. Um, you're listening to At Home on TalkRadio.nyc. It's my pleasure to introduce tonight's guest speaker. Michael Feinstein is an Emmy and Grammy-nominated musician who is widely recognized for his commitment to preserving the legacy of America's popular song. Someone to watch over me. You're listening to the Talking Alternative Network. Do you love or are you intrigued about New York City and its neighborhoods? I'm Jeff Goodman, host of Rediscovering New York, a weekly show that showcases New York's history and its extraordinary neighborhoods. Every Tuesday live at 7 p.m., we focus on a particular neighborhood and explore its history, its vibe, its feel, and its energy. Tune in live every Tuesday at 7 p.m. on talkradio.nyc. Talking Alternative Radio, 24 hours a day. We are talking to John Buono, preservationist and architect. Um, we have posted some wonderful photos of John's projects on Instagram for everybody to take a look at. And then your website, which uh, um, is the company name, which mm-hmm. is hlzimmerman.com. Yep. And if you go to some of the uh, office profiles, you're predominantly featured there. Yeah, it's. I mean, it's a great practice. Really, uh, Howard is, you know, the namesake of the practice. Is uh, is one of these characters who uh, I shouldn't say. I mean, he is a character. He is he is, he is a great personality, and he's great to work with. Um, but he came into practice at a time in the city when uh, there was this huge reevaluation of the condition of historic facades. You know, I, you know, the thing I like to tell people is that 
if you look at when the volume of construction was happening in the city, you know, and how much was being built between 1900 and say 1920. Oh my God, almost every building downtown or like in the um, yeah. Tribeca, Soho, all of that is 1912, 1911, yeah. 1913. You know, it's incredible yeah. how much was going on. And so, you know, when he started practice, these buildings were coming well beyond 50 years of their life. Yeah, right. Now they're beyond 100. Exactly. And, you know, and so, we've got most of them. Yeah. But I mean, it, you know, for lack of a better word, they're just exhausted. You yeah. know, they have, they are, they, yeah. they need help. Uh, they, they definitely need facade work. Uh, you know, the materials that they're built of have just come to the end of their life. Yeah. Yeah, exhausted is, mm -hmm. yeah, I say tired a lot, but mm -hmm. it's really, truly more exhausted, right? Um, so take a look at that. Take a look at Instagram and some of those great pictures. I mean, it's a, it's, a, it's a marvel to look at the Cartier Museum and, and the UN and what John has been a part of. Um, send the questions now, if you would, please, to David at David Thiergartner Interior. And just always remember to put the subject line at home, and we'll get the, to those in about 12, 15 minutes here. John, I, I do want to talk about the Cartier uh, Fifth Avenue building. I think almost all New Yorkers now, we do have a listening audience that goes beyond New York City, but um, uh, it's a familiar corner. Uh, and I tell you, the bow, the Christmas, the Christmas bow, bow has, has a lot, lot to, to do, do with, with that. that. But it is a beautiful 19th mm -hmm. century mansion. Right? Yeah, but I just want to give credit to the bow because that is, the, as <laughs> far is. as I know, that is the first building bow in the city. Okay. Yeah. Okay. It's and it's. I, I think I think I know the uh, kind of art director who was involved in it. But uh, do you know, historically, do you know how long that bow's been on that building? Yeah. I mean, it's definitely goes back to the '60s. Okay. Um, I yeah, I can't remember actually the first year, but it's it's been there quite a while. Yeah. I mean, if anything, I think uh, that bow has made the city get more and more holiday decorated sure. each year because it's sure. such a spectacular. Um, it is spectacular. It is. Just no, yeah. And it's near Rockefeller Center, so yeah. you get this whole, you know. And the building's such a jewel box. Yeah, you know? it's a perfect yeah. little square box right there. Um, so, yes, yeah, so all of the great things about Cartier, as well as the brand, which give them a lot of credit for. Uh, what was the first major, what, well, no, that's not the first major. What was the goal of the preservation? So, Yes, there was a preservation goal, and I, you know, I almost have to say that that came after a very um, significant kind of mission goal uh, to increase the amount of sales space uh, within the building. Oh, and so, you know, we, we really had to balance those two. You know, of course, the building is a designated landmark from the 1970s. So the and landmark is exterior yes. in yeah. New York. It could be different. It, it could be interior, but in this case, it doesn't extend yeah. to the interior. Um, and Cartier has a, an amazing sense and respect for the heritage of the building. Um, and I, you know, I could talk about that. I want to talk about that. Well, how long has Cartier had that building? So they have been in the building operating as a store since 1917. Oh my God. Um, and one of the things that, you know, for as much as I kind of got a sense of that, but learning about how the company grew at that time period is, is really pretty fascinating. Um, so that growth period is basically the third generation of Cartiers. Um, and it happened to be three brothers. And I tell you, if you're going to grow a business, it's good to have, you know, a couple of brothers. <laughs> um, so Alfred Cartier had, you know, he was the second in line um, and it had, had, a, had a bit of expansion for what his, what his dad had really pioneered. But the sons were the ones who became kind of the global and uh, 
the really the really big the visionaries the visionaries yeah the it's, international sort of yeah right so the store starts well sorry it doesn't start but one of its most significant locations early locations is at uh, Rue de la Paix in Paris um, close to Place Vendôme and what was really kind of strategic about it is that um, Pierre who was kind of one of the leading um, sons uh, in this idea wanted to co-locate uh, the store within a hotel um, and so within that, sorry, I meant to say uh, it's actually Louis, uh, Louis' intent to open it in the store. He was uh, the older of the brothers and more kind of the designer and the one who stayed in Paris. But his two brothers go off to start these flagships in other cities. So the first one's in London, and then the second one is in New York City in 1909. Um, and the reason why I'm getting all to this is that... Well, there's a part of the whole story that you said in the first segment that you were interested in as far as getting to the project, right? Yeah, I just, you know, I I always kind of just saw what the interior design was, and you don't really think of a branded retail interior space until kind of current day. But um, the brothers had latched on to a very specific interior design style of uh, Louis Says. And, you know, this is uh, uh, the the design period that happened just before the revolution. And it was, I guess, in the turn of the century Paris, you know, earlier, like Louis XIV had become kind of in vogue, but it was just kind of over the top. And so they wanted this more refined, uh, you know, the style that just predates neoclassicism to be their environment for selling jewelry. And frankly, some very modern and innovative jewelry. I mean, in terms of, you know, the innovations they made with watches at the time was pretty fantastic. So that style that happens at the first store in Rue de la Paix then gets transposed to the London store and then gets transposed to the New York City store. And so they kind of have this international branded space. Pretty remarkable for the time, right? That uh, they thought that that needed to be consistent throughout right and you know we we don't know for sure or at least i i don't know for sure but you know there's a good possibility that the woodwork that survives in the store today was actually originally produced in, in france. france and then and then sent Chances over are probably right the woodwork is a big part of the interior or you know the paneling the millwork right as it were um were you able to preserve m- most of that intent? Yeah, yeah. It was, uh, you know, there were some rooms that were more original than others. Um, all in all, there were nine rooms that, to some degree... That was were, public space, a retail space? Yeah, all, all, all the rooms that were, say, disassembled were effectively retail space. Yeah. And they, they literally were taken apart, uh, uh, cataloged, numbered, stored, created, and then went into workshops to actually be refinished. Um, the room that is really the image, uh, the most kind of direct image of day one f- around 1917 is the high jewelry room, which is right off of Fifth Avenue. So that's the room that you come straight into. And uh, in terms of, of, you know, the curved paneling and the decoration and the um, alcoves and elements like that, it, it really is what it was from day one. Other rooms, and this was, you know, I... I have to I have to acknowledge uh, the office of Terry Despont, who really was the the lead designer for the project and um, had many years of involvement and you know a great team there. You know they came up with the big idea for the way the mansion was going to be reorganized because effectively the retail space was being doubled. You know that, that was that was a huge change. Um, and That's it, a gigantic change, yeah. And the the initial the idea, flow and the, the whole thing, yeah, yeah. accessibility and in. It was a return in some ways to what 
the building was originally as a mansion. Um, the, man- the building was originally uh, built for the Plant family, um, uh, Morton Plant, who was a uh, who was an industrialist. It, he he passed unfortunately not too long after the building was finished. The house was finished in 1905. Um, he dies a few years later, and then that leads to possibly what they consider one of the greatest. Uh, uh, real estate exchanges in the 20th century. Maybe you've heard the story about the pearl. It's a fascinating story, so please tell it. Well, yeah. the, I mean, the, uh, you know, the pearl necklace, the exchange between um, uh, Pierre and, and Maisie Plant. I have to say, you know, I, I don't know a lot of the details beyond that. It's still fun. It, it is. And, uh, you know, I, I do know, at least in terms of that time period, that pearls were actually more valuable than diamonds, um, at least in terms of Cartier's practice, in terms of, you know, authentic pearls. So it... it you know, it was valued, I believe, at about a million dollars at the time, and so that was the transaction for the residents. Pretty great transaction. Mm-hmm. Not, not quite different than the Louisiana Purchase. No, <laughs> <laughs> at a different time. We're running out of time, and I want to jump to the UN real quick because that's so significant and so beautiful. But what I like about your description of the style of the Cartier brothers and their first intent is what I think is important to me in my design style, which is that the building or the interior of the building had a sense of quality, had a sense of luxury. It was custom mill work. Um, but it, it wasn't stealing the show away from what they were trying to sell, which was the you know the jewelry on the velvet pad in mm-hmm. front of the person in front of them. And that balance, I think, is so significant today as far as how I perceive interiors or how I think interiors should look like, right? To uh, you know, have a quality size architectural interior, but it's the other things that we need to learn to focus on. And great. Let's talk about the UN real quick. Um, just tell us real quick about, uh, you know, the project and how long the project took. I know there's some things we can't talk about, but that makes it more fun. <laughs> but go ahead and tell me. Well, you know, it, it was a very, it was a decades long project even before I joined it. So, you know, I, I, I don't, I, I don't want to get into all that. I guess what I'll say is the joy. And I think what the reason why New Yorkers should have no excuse not to go take a tour of the UN you know, Which I, I've never done. You got to do it. You got to do it. A lot of people I'll say like, that. oh, I went as an elementary school kid. You have to go back. Okay. You have to go back. Okay. You got to see the restored interiors. That's a good takeaway. Um, Everybody go to the UN. Okay. Because the interiors are what is less often talked about in terms of the design. There's a lot of talk about the layout of the buildings. And that was a big competition that drew in... Um, a rather not so much a competition, but rather a consortium of designers that included Le Corbusier, and so the, you know that was one of his biggest first marks in the city. But it's not fair to say it's Le Corbusier's design. Um, uh, Oscar Niemeyer was involved in well as well, but he was a participant in kind of a larger group, and so the the interiors really get fleshed out in the 1950s, and there are so many different groups coming in, parties to play. But I think that's a really fascinating story that people experience once they get inside. And it was the introduction of a lot of new materials um, that were just kind of coming. You have to, the, the other thing I always take to heart is that there had been a moratorium on construction in the U.S. Uh, during World War II. Mm. And, you know, just in terms of the New York City market, the U.N. construction is one of the first breaks in that moratorium for a massive building. Um, so that's happening, but you know this is this great innovation period that ends up trickling down to everybody's like home life, you know whether it's uh, vinyl flooring or naga hide. Um, all these new materials came all these on new the market, materials. and things that weren't available like 
you know, rubber or any mm-hmm. of that is now available again. Yeah, it was the largest air-conditioned building uh, right. constructed at its time. Right, which if we can't even possibly conceive it, that was unusual. Right. right. And so, you know, like just on that one example, one of the joys we had is that some of the air conditioning systems were actually designed to be expressed and were very sculptural. And so that was a challenge of actually restoring these. Oh, that's fascinating. Yeah. We could talk about that. Listen, um, I have so many things I want to talk. We didn't even talk about DIY stuff, people within their own homes. So maybe we have some questions to that, but other questions just about the projects. But you'll be happy to know that here at talkradio.nyc that we preserve these conversations. And so that's good. And we also uh, have them on iTunes. Would you stay with me and take some questions yeah, from our listeners? Yeah, be happy to. Great. This is At Home, and John and I will be back in two minutes. You're listening to the Talking Alternative Network. The best designs for your life start at home. I'm David Thiergartner, interior designer and host of At Home. Listen live Tuesday nights at 8 p.m. Eastern Time as we talk to the very best professionals about interior design and the design that's all around us right here on talkradio.nyc. Are you a conscious co-creator? Are you on a quest to raise your vibration and your consciousness? I'm Sam Leibowitz, your Conscious Consultant, and on my show, The Conscious Consultant Hour, Awakening Humanity, we will touch upon all these topics and more. Listen live at our new time on Thursdays at 12 noon Eastern Time. That's The Conscious Consultant Hour, Awakening Humanity, Thursdays, 12 noon on talkradio.nyc. TalkingAlternative.com John, let's take um, some questions. We got we got all kinds of questions coming in here. Um, right. Let's do the first one, which is, what is the oldest project you've ever worked on? You know, I I'm I'm thinking that it's probably uh, something from the Civil War era, and I was fortunate enough to start my career with the National Park Service, working in the southeastern United States. And, uh, you know, one of the challenges of the Civil War battlefields is that, you know, there there are these amazing landscapes. um, And a a lot of the battles were actually composed of earthworks. So these were, you know, constructions of, you know, of earth, sometimes with timber. And, uh, you know, they have a fantastic kind of landscape 
quality to them, but you also you just can't understand the history of you know uh, the battle sequence without seeing these earthworks. So the challenge is basically how how do you preserve a mound of dirt? you know, for hundreds of years. So how do you do that? Well, so, you know, stabilization <laughs> with question, by the way. with, uh, with uh, some type of turf or some type oh, of, uh, you don't want anything too invasive. You want, you know, there are certain grasses are better than mm-hmm, others. Sure. Um, and what, one of the threats is that, you know, just the more people you have traversing these things or, you know, running Pounding, over yeah. it with a lawnmower yep. is going to dig into it more. And, uh, you know, I mean, I think every superintendent of one of these sites would love to take the English model or the European model and have just a whole flock of sheep graze these has, things. Has that happened? You know, I, I should know, but I, I don't know of any successful examples in the States. Wow. So, and, you know, it's a thing. It's it's hard enough maintaining a park as it is, but when you also become a uh, when you add husbandry to it, you know, <laughs> taking care of animals that makes it a little bit more yeah difficult. yeah a whole another layer of preservation going yeah. on. Here's another one. This is from Thomas G. Um, have you ever found anything hidden or any hidden treasure? Yeah, I mean that that actually happens all the time. Wow! And, oh, uh, another great question. You know, I mean, yeah. it's it's funny that e- even just the other day. Like, well, go ahead. Go no, ahead. even just the other day, I was you know if, if somebody was kind of pointing to a wall cavity, and I said, "Was that beer bottle in there before you took the picture?" I'm like, "He's like, yeah, yeah." I mean, so there is like this great tradition. I don't know if it's intentional or what of contractors or builders just leaving things inside wall cavities, and you know, this one happened to me not that old, but certainly I found like old pull off you know pull off tabs of PBR or newspapers are a lot of fun yeah. when you find you know old newspapers inside walls I mean I know for me that when we do a gut renovation there is always a pocket of something somewhere and yeah. that's either because I think of that the same idea the contractor or the original builder or even the husband who the hell knows at that time always decided to throw something yeah. behind the wall and the newspapers are always the best right? because they're dated and then something of historical significance. Yeah, it's like a little time capsule. But I I found axes, I found hammers, I found like, you know, did you drop the hammer behind the wall? You know, it's sort of funny what happens. What else have you found? Well, with the UN, we had one moment that actually, I think, made us all sleep well at night because one of the rooms known as the trusteeship chamber that was a, a gift of Denmark and a fantastic kind of first big design of Finn Yule, who was uh, really young in his career. And it's mostly known for his furniture, but he designed this room. I was going to say for his furniture. He had, he had created these fantastic wall sconces. Um, you know, the best way to describe them is they were stainless steel, nickel plated, but they had this shape to them. You know, the sconces were bigger than your head, but they just, they were like a shape like a chestnut. Just this really, really gorgeous shape. And during one of the renovations, they had extended the floor and basically taken some of them off the wall. We didn't know where they were. We were going to have to reproduce them because we were restoring the so room you're going configuration. All of that, yeah. And we were terrified because to reproduce these things would like be going to a silversmith. You know, these massive hand, uh, hand created bowls were similar to like the fenders of a 1950s car. You know, the technique was like an English wheel to basically hand press out these shapes. Um, so yeah, we, we lost sleep thinking about how we were going to do this even remotely economically. And they went into a cavity underneath the uh, seating and found them stored uh, basically almost cast, kind of in a corner. And so... How many were there? There were, uh, there were two of them. Wow. So a fantastic treasure story for me, and it's just occurring to me because that was such a great question, but 
early on in the 80s when they were ripping everything down or something, we protested or signed petitions and stood out in front of Fifth Avenue across the street from Tiffany. There was a row of five townhouses that are still there today. Uh, ben Dole's was one of the last mm -hmm. occupants that I think people might be able to recognize. But they discovered on the third floor these lilac, uh, lilac, uh, lilac uh, glass window panels yeah. that they nobody knew existed. And if those buildings weren't, you know, preserved and saved, they might have been lost yeah, just no, from know a you ones. know wrecking ball. Yeah, they're gorgeous, and the, and you can see them today because you can see them from the street. And it's just, but that was a fun treasure too. That was big, right. gigantic news back then. I think that was really incredible. Let's look at the next one. Um, how are details, what is it saying? Details are important to the integrity of a project, yes. Like, how far into the original preserved details do you get? Uh, well, I mean, I guess you just talked about it with the sconces. Yeah, I mean, certainly, you know, I'd, I'd say maybe the one the one barrier that we cross is uh, an issue of just in environmental hazard. You know, say, for example, uh, like cadmium used to be a plated, Material for a lot that's highly, highly toxic a lot of today. Mercury in it or something, yeah. Right? yeah, and so you know we you find that quite a bit in some of the high style like fifties and sixties era designs. Um, of course, there are endangered woods that you know are, are very you know maybe you can find an attic stock or some kind of reserve stock, but sourcing them directly is almost prohibitive, almost impossible. So yeah, I mean those those are kind of the tough challenges that you come across. But of course, you know the idea is that. There's a spectrum, you know, if it is really wanting or, or desiring to be a museum quality restoration, you go all out. Right. You know, you want to reproduce the methods that were used. Correct. Um, yeah. And then, you know, it's, it's a balancing act, anything below that. But still, very fascinating, right? Because I think a lot of people who have even older homes... Right, they're trying to balance out what was important, what's not important. Um, we had a whole bunch of questions about that. I own these historic houses and stuff, so that's an interesting sort of thought. Do what you can, uh, decide what's important, put a priority on it, right? Yeah. Because cost is a part of this whole uh, uh, concept of preservation and restoration yeah. too. I guess you know I would tell people don't take your moldings for granted. You know, if you've got say a a pre 1950s era home with uh, you know baseboards and wall trim and things like that. Those there actually is like a rationale behind like whether something is five inches or seven inches or three inches and the way that that kind of contributes to the scale of a space. So I I, I do encourage people to kind of take that sensitively. Right to yeah basically create the story that you're trying yeah. to create yeah. yeah before they start on on what they're doing here's one last question for us besides culturally is there an intrinsic value to older buildings i think it's a little bit of what we were just talking about materials can be a huge part of that well yeah and you know now that a lot of my great interest is focused on actually mid-century era design which you know i've been working long enough to kind of debate the value of that where you know some of the knee uh, the knee jerk reaction is oh well that's like the elementary school I, I grew up going to like what's important about that, but when you start to look at things in a in a continuity you realize that just resources are increasingly resources and craft are increasingly rare and they do disappear unlimited yeah yeah so just as you know certain skills of the 1950s have evaporated you know no different than the skills of the Victorian era or before. Exactly. And mid-century, yeah, by the sure. way, is, 
getting close to being 70 years old. Yeah, so, you know, I, I, I would mean, actually, there is a timeline to mid-century as well. Yeah. I mean, I would actually even say now that like the battle for mid-century is won. And I was recently at a conference last week where postmodernism is now. It's now the, yeah. wow. Yeah. Which would be more me. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, John. I can't thank you enough. Uh, I've said it before. We have like a thousand questions here. We could do this all over again oh, and talk treat. about other things. So thank you very much. We really appreciate you taking the time to be with us tonight. Um, I want to thank everybody here at talkradio.nyc. Schoolhouse number six productions. I couldn't do it without you, and I wouldn't even want to try. Hey, a special thanks to Benjamin Keegan for our music tonight. I got a big kick out of it. I hope you did too. And remember to follow me on Instagram and Twitter at home with DTI. And don't forget to take a look at my website, davidthurgartnerinteriors.com. Join me next week when we're going to talk to David Curry. He's an architect too, a furniture designer, and owner of KGBL Furniture Designs. I got to tell you, talking about innovative and creative and beautiful, this furniture is something else and I use it a lot. Stay tuned for the Noreen Sumter Show, Beyond Potential, Live Life Your Way. And until next week, on the radio, remember the best designs for your life start at home. Come join hand in hand, brave Americans all, and rouse your bold hearts at fair liberty's call. No tyrannous act shall suppress your just claim, or stain with dishonor America's name. In freedom we're born and in freedom we live. Our purses are You're listening to the Talking Alternative Network. You're listening to the Talking Alternative Network. Are you stuck in a rut? Negative thoughts, feelings, and conversations got you down? Hi, I'm Noreen Sumter, The Potentiator. Tune in every Tuesday at 9 to 10 p.m. Eastern Time and listen for new ideas on my show, Beyond Potential, Live Life Your Way, on talkradio.nyc. Hey, all you crazy listeners. Looking to boost your business? Why not advertise on Talking Alternative with very reasonable rates? Interested? Simply email at info at talkingalternative.com. The best designs for your life start at home. I'm David Thiergartner, interior designer and host of At Home. Listen live Tuesday nights at 8 p.m. Eastern Time as we talk to the very best professionals about interior design and the design that's all around us right here on talkradio.nyc. You're listening to the Talking Alternative Network at www.talkingalternative.com. Now, broadcasting 24 hours a day. Talking Alternative. Are you a conscious co-creator? Are you on a quest to raise your vibration and your consciousness? I'm Sam Leibowitz, your Conscious Consultant, and on my show, The Conscious Consultant Hour, Awakening Humanity, we will touch upon all these topics and more. Listen live at our new time on Thursdays at 12 noon Eastern Time. That's The Conscious Consultant Hour, Awakening Humanity, Thursdays, 12 noon on talkradio.nyc.
You're listening to the Talking Alternative Network. <laughs> 